be turning your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 14. This is the last sermon in chapter 14. This is the 66th sermon in the book of Luke, and we're, we're a little bit over halfway through. So uh, we've been focusing in Luke on the characteristics of a disciple. Thus far in the chapter 14, we focus on the, the disciple is focused on God getting glory, God being honored above everything else. Human traditions, specifically it was talking about the Pharisees with their religious traditions. But the disciple is one who's focused on God being glorified and his will being done. Next we saw that a we saw that a disciple is one who's characterized by humility. They want God to be raised high, not themselves. We saw this in the parable of the uh, wedding feast. When you go to a wedding feast, he said, don't take the seat of honor, but allow the, the one who has invited you to place you where he would. Last week, my friend Bobby eloquently, we watched it on live stream, eloquently showed us that a disciple is one who is will, ready and willing to be obedient to God. Ready and willing to be obedient to God. We, we saw the, the parable of the, wet of the ban- banquet where the, he had this massive banquet and every, one after the other, people had excuse after excuse of why they couldn't come. We saw that God's table is massive. We saw that God's table is for all that would come and be obedient. This week, as he closes this minor section, We'll see Jesus show us three more characteristics that describe a disciple. One, they love God above all. Two, taking up your cross. We'll talk about what that means. And three, the giving up of your life. We'll see four points in their text. The first, the cost of coming to Christ. We're going to see that he tells us that we, as I said earlier, have to love God above everything else in this life. And three times, actually, in this, these ten verses, he says, if we don't do this, we cannot be his disciple. Harsh words from our Lord. Second thing we're going to, uh, the second point was counting the cost. He tells us three parables. The first one, we're going to see of a builder. It, this, he says, there's a, if a builder goes and builds a tower, he's going to go and he's going to figure out if he has the money to finish it. We must also count the cost of what it means to come to Christ for salvation. Third is comprehending the cost. He tells a second parable. One of a king going out to war. He says that there's no king that would go to war with before making sure that he can at least come close to winning. Likewise, we must count the cost, comprehend the cost of coming to Christ. Though it's free, it will cost us our lives. And finally, the third, fourth, third parable, the fourth point, the confirmation of conversion. He tells a minor, little mini parable about. He tells a mini parable about salt. He says if salt loses its saltiness, it's a, not good for the soil or even the dunghill. I've entitled this message "The Cost of Discipleship." Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 25. 
Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you designed to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see, see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, a, build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either to the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of God that has been handed down and kept by the Spirit of God for our good and for His glory. Receive as such. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning hearing shocking words from our Lord. Even confusing words. But Father, I pray that as we come to this text, that you would enlighten it and enliven it by the power of the Spirit this morning. And that you would help us, help use your word by the power of your Spirit to strengthen us and strengthen our resolve to worship you with everything we have and everything we have. It's in your precious Son's name I pray. Amen. Last week we were on vacation. I'm sure most of y'all saw from the Facebook post that Chelsea put. We had a time. Well, Monday or Sunday we got there. Sunday in the middle of the night the dogs got out of the tent, ran away, and never came back. Tuesday, or Monday rather, we got out on the boat. And Judah was on the, on the uh, tube. And he came, we went over a... A wave, and he came up, smacked down, and broke his collarbone. That's why he's got duct or tape all around him right now, keeping him still because he won't stand still. Then later Tuesday, we tried to get the boat back up on the ra- on the uh, on the trailer, and the the belt had broken. So I spent all Tuesday and Wednesday on my back trying to fix the boat. Got it. Finally got it out. Oh, Monday and Tuesday. No, it was Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Trying to fix the boat. We, yeah, I know, Judah. We finally got that out. We found out that the that not only had the belt broken, but the forward gear had gone out. So our boat was done for for a little while. All that to say, sometimes we have to figure out whether it's worth it to count the cost. As we're getting to our text, to to make sure when we're going to get something or going to do something, we're prepared for all the worst case scenarios. 
because it, last week they all happened in one short week. This, this text this morning, Jesus looks to this crowd of disciples, not disciples, but this crowd of people that accompany them, and he tells them they need to count the cost. They need to make sure they know what they're doing. They need to understand what it is. And it starts in verse 25, the first point, the cost of coming to Christ. Verse 25 says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now, in modern times in America, if you grew up, which we all did, we would expect him to give some politically correct speech focused on how great he, wa- he was and how, has such a, how great it was to be in front of such a large audience. And how, how wonderful these, and great these different people are for coming and following him. But what he says is nothing of the sorts. As often times we, we would expect in today's, what Jesus actually does is absolutely opposite. He says, I don't care if you're here, modern time, I don't care if you're coming to church, how good of a person you think you are or how much you think you've earned it. Look with me at 26, verse 26. If anyone comes, anyone, to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now, we, we're going to get hung up on that one word right there, hate. Right? Biblically, it has a little bit different meaning than what you and I might use it for today. We... we the best way to see that is going back to Genesis chapter 29. In it, when Jacob is, is, had just worked for seven years for Leah and then seven more years for Rachel, and they were both becoming his wife, it said that Jacob loved Rachel more. But then in the very next verses... It said, when the Lord saw that Leah hated, or Jacob, Leah was hated. So what he's talking about here is hatred in the biblical terms simply means to love less. It doesn't mean a loathing, a, a, you can't stand even look at them, a, a fire in your belly. It doesn't mean that when we see it in scriptures. Another place we can look is Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now wait a second. We're talking about God. Can he really hate someone with a loathing loathing hatred that he can't even look at? No. He loved him less. He chose to shower his love upon Jacob. And Jacob... In Genesis 29, chose to love Rachel more. And so when we see this, we can't get hung up on this phrase, do not, you have to hate your own father and mother, because if that were the case, I don't think any of us would be here. But what we do have to cling to is the words that are said. You have to love God more than anything. Do you see that? More than your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life. 
See, this is the same thing that Jesus is telling the crowd. Not, not that you have to loathe your family and even yourself, but you, you have to love them less than you love God. Notice the requirement. It's a requirement, not a suggestion. You must love God more, period. You, and it, not only that, but you cannot be his disciple if you don't. Harsh words from our Lord. More than your family, more than yourself. But he puts it in the negative. If you don't, then you cannot. He says it plainly and bluntly. Know this, that when, when one comes to me for counsel, I'm going to counsel with this in mind. I'm going to counsel not with the mindset of making the person whole, but with the mindset that everyone that comes to me for counsel as a pastor wants to honor and glorify God more than even themselves. See, all right? He wants, when someone comes to me for advice or counsel, their, their marriage is on the rocks, my, my focus will always be back to the Word of God and bringing Him glory through whatever situation you're going through. Why? Because that's the expectation for a disciple. And a disciple is simply a Christian. Now, notice this isn't talking about pastors or deacons. Or professors. He's talking about the disciples. These are people that have come after Jesus, that are following him because they like what he's saying. They, they, they like what they see him doing. And Jesus says, make sure you know what you're doing. Make sure you understand what it means to become a Christian. Well, make sure you know understand what it means when you want to come to Christ. Not that you loathe everything else, but that you love God. You're, you're making a claim that you love God more than everything. It doesn't just take over a few hours on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday. It takes over your life. Everything is subject to Him. But He continues and says it another way in verse 27. Maybe less harsh to our ears, but probably even more harsh to their, their ears. Because they understood what hate was in that day, and we take it a different way in our culture. Verse 27 says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, and here it is again, cannot be my disciple. Now remember, what is the cross? The cross isn't a piece of jewelry you put on. It's not a necklace that I'm wearing right now. It's not plastering it on your ring like I have. It's not wearing it as earrings. It's the cross was your execution stone. The cross was that common way of being killed in those times. The Romans would line the streets of towns they conquered with people that were crucified. Because those people, they would, rather, because they would do it to put fear into the people. And so when Jesus turns to them, whoever does not bear his own cross, or does not take up his own cross. The means by which you even are going to die cannot be my disciple. Not only do you have to love yourself and your family less than you love God, you have to love him enough to die yourself. Jesus said that to gain your life, you must lose it. So he says, so he says you have to choose me 
over even your life. Your hobbies, your jobs, your finances, your house, your family should all be subject to God and his word if we are to be his disciple. What job should I have? What movies should I watch? Who should I be friends with? Should I be a part of a club, a group? All of these questions are subject to another question. How will doing this bring God glory? How will doing this shape me or help me bring the gospel to others? See, that, that, that's what it means here. That's what it means to bear your own cross. It means that your own desires, your own pleasures, everything you have is subject now to God. This is not the requirement just for pastors, as I said, and the professionals, professors. Jesus is laying out the requirements for discipleship. That's to be a Christian. This skin flies in the face of modern, easy believism. Jesus often does that. You see, grace is free, but it will cost you everything. This is one of the paradigms of the Christian life. It, coming to him, you receive a free gift that was purchased on the cross. And on the cross, he, if you come to him, he will cover you with his blood. But you're not coming to him saying, I am me, you just take me as I am. You're coming to him saying, I am me, shape me into you. It takes everything from us. You see, we must see the cost of coming to Christ. But second, he tells us, not just to see it, but to count it. Count the cost. That's our second point, counting the cost. Our Lord tells a mini par- parable here, the first of three, of a builder and explains why you need to know what you're doing when you come to Christ. Verse 28. For which of you, designed to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? This is a logical statement. Logically, before you start a building project, you're going to make sure that you have the ability, the time, and the money to make sure it's done. He poses this question as an absurdity. Which of you wouldn't do this? Everyone would do this. He's not speaking to one demographic. The people that have come after him are from different backgrounds, from different houses, from different areas, different ages, different jobs, different occupations. And he says, which of you wouldn't do this? It's common knowledge that before you start a project, you make sure that you can finish it. Now, if we in America took that to heart, we wouldn't be in as much debt as we were in. Right? That's basically what he's saying. It's a foolish, fool's errand to start something and not have the money to finish it. It's common knowledge that before you start a building project, you should make sure you have the means to finish it. And he gives you the outcome if you don't. Verse 29 and 30 says this. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Saying, this man began to build build, and was not able to finish. To start a product and be unable to finish, Jesus says, will put you in a place of ridicule. You'll be laughed at. You'll be mocked. Because you, you were foolish enough to, to start without having enough foresight to understand what the cost was. Now, Jesus is not primarily concerned with how much money you have to build a building, build a tower. Remember the context here. The context is coming to Christ. 
The context is understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The context is, is whether or not we are going to submit ourselves to Christ. And he's saying, if you come, understand what this life entails. This life doesn't, as some evangelists might tell you, doesn't make everything candy and roses. In fact, promise the exact opposite. We're promised that we're going to be persecuted. One of the promises of coming to Christ. You'll be persecuted for what you believe. You'll be hated by the world. Understand what you're doing when you come to Christ. Christ, count the cost. Don't just have enough foresight to look forward and make sure that you're going to be able to finish. Otherwise, you'll be in a place of ridicule. It's, it's, and it's an evidence thing, not an earning thing. The evidence that one truly comes to Christ is that he's able to finish. The context is loving Christ more than everything. And if you cannot love Christ more than everything, then you cannot, will not be able to finish because something will get in your way. Something will get in your way. In the last 10 years, I've only been a Christian for 15 years. In the last 10 years, if we look back and you just track the, the culture's attitude towards Christianity here in America, you can see the antagonism that's coming. That you can see how people are getting frustrated and angry that we still hold to this ancient book. That when it says we, we when it says we believe, and people are getting more and more angry about this. Make sure when you come to Christ, you understand what you're doing. It's always you have to count the cost. But I can tell you from experience, it's always worth it. Because if you know the treasure that lies in Christ, then nothing that this world can do to us will ever take that away. Jesus goes a step further and he says, not only should you look to make sure you have enough to finish, but you should know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Verse, uh, chapter uh, point three, rather, comprehending the cost. Jesus tells a second rapid fire parable. This time about a king going to war. He has changed the audience from anyone in the crowd to royalty. And the object of a building to a war. But the point is still very similar. But look at verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? How foolish would a leader be if they didn't first strategize how they would be able to win a battle? How foolish would a, a, a boss be if they didn't look forward to understand what their, their employers were going to be thinking? That's the idea here. This is not a crazy revelation to any, anyone, any leader. Any leader who ha should have enough forward thought about what their actions are going to do to impact those who are following them. Again, Jesus states in this mini parable as an absurdity. That there would be any king, any leader, any boss who would purposefully go and put their people in harm's way. You see that? 
It's an absurdity. Why would a king do that? He states as an absolute absurdity. But he continues and says in verse 32, And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends delegation and asks for terms of peace. See, a good leader will, will know when he is trying to fight the battle he cannot win. There are two types of wars. There's an offensive wars, or wars of conquest, and there are defensive wars, wars of protected, protection. Offensive wars, you have to conquer new land to win. Defensive, you simply have to outlast your opponent. The American Revolution was, is a great example of a defensive war. In a defensive war, the, the, the British came over and they were trying to conquer land. It was already technically theirs, but they were trying to that had been seized by the Americans, technically. The Americans just had outlast them. They were already here. They already owned it. They just had to outlast them. Well, in this parable, Jesus is showing us that Jesus is waging war against your flesh. And it is a war of conquest. It's an offensive war. His goal is not to leave you as you are. His goal is to take you and mold you and shape you into the image of Christ. The perfected image of Christ. We must know when we come to Jesus that, this, that his purpose is to conquer our old self and replace it with himself. So come to Jesus, but understand what you are doing. Understand what you are choosing to give up. We have to see here a, a second side of this parable that I, I want you to see is when you're counting the cost, understand that you're in a battle. If you are, are standing in opposition to Christ, you're in a battle against Christ. But we're in battle against God. And if we don't surrender, if we don't look at the weight of our sin that is levied on our shoulders and see that there is an army coming, a, a, a powerful army coming of God's wrath against us, and, the, then the, and surrender to Him, we'll be destroyed. You see that? We have to look and see and comprehend what we are doing in the moment. He goes on in verse 30, 33 and says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now wait a second, Jesus. You're trying to get these people saved, right? You're turning to a crowd that's falling after you and you're supposed to be giving them the gospel and telling them how to be saved and tell them all the good things that are going to come. That's what we do here in America. No. He says, count the cost. Make sure you understand what you're doing. You renounce all of yourself. Or you cannot be my disciples. Jesus is on one side and the flesh is on the other. Know that when you come to him, the flesh will wage war. But if you are truly become a child of the living God, then you are not surrendering a moment or a time in the couple times a week. Your life is surrendered to his. Everything you are, everything you have been is put in the subjection to who Christ is and his glory. Everything that God is. You no longer live for yourself, but you live your life 
for God. And again, beloved, if, if this isn't just um, for missionaries, pastors, or deacons, or professors. He finishes this parable by saying that a third time, you cannot be my disciple unless you've renounced everything. This isn't the requirement for a super Christian. This is the requirement for all Christians. Most evangelists, evangelists want to break down the every barrier to become a Christian. They want to make it look as easy as possible. But we must know and understand that salvation is a free gift. But it will take everything. He is a, he is a conqueror who will conquer your flesh to leave you with Christ. But it's what? Praise God. Look at our third many parable, the confirmation of conversion. Point number four. Jesus tells his third many parable to conclude this text given after three requirements. One, love God above all. Two, take up your cross. And three, you have to renounce yourself, giving up your life. He says that salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? A salt has functions and usefulness. Its two main purposes is to flavor food and to preserve. But if it loses its saltiness, it says, how can it be restored? Well, technically speaking, it can never lose its saltiness, but it can be diluted to the point of being useless. If salt is so diluted, so watered down, it doesn't even taste like salt anymore. Once salt is diluted to this point, it loses all taste. It can never be gain, regain its potency. Beloved, we as Christians are the salt of the world. We've heard Jesus say that in the Gospel of John. And you are called Christians for a purpose. We are salt for a purpose. Never let... Never let the world so dilute us that we lose all of our usefulness. That's what he's talking about. As Christians, we are here for a purpose. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are here to bring forth the glory of God and the gospel of God to every corner of the world. Don't dilute your effectiveness with, effectiveness with the love of the world and the love of the flesh. He finishes his last verse. It says in verse 35, it is of no use, talking about the tasteless salt, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. If, if salt doesn't serve its purpose, he says you can't throw it in the garden. Obviously, if anyone knows anything about gardening, it'll kill it. It'll kill, the, it'll kill any, of the, uh, any of the plants around it. It's not any good for the manure pile. It's not good for anything. It's all, all it's good for is to throw away. He's saying, telling that to us, as we consider what it means to come to Christ, what it means to submit to Christ, what it means to live for Christ, this is the forward looking of it. This is us looking forward at our life now that we are saved. Are we being salt? In John's, are we being light? Are we shining the gospel the way that we are ought to? Are we being the ambassadors?
ambassadors that he has saved us to be. But the proof of that your conversion is real is that your saltiness never is diluted to the point that you are useless to the king. He doesn't throw his children away. But those who make a commitment, those who get their fire insurance and then go right back to the world, they prove that they were never his to begin with. Make sure that your saltiness is real. Make sure that you are useful and being used for the Lord, your master and your king. This sermon flies in the face of most American Christianity because it tells us that coming to Christ is easy, but it will take everything you have. Let's go to Lord and pray. Father, you are good and worthy even amidst hard texts like this. Father, I pray that you would use this sermon, use your word, use your scriptures as a text that would set a fire in the hearts, in the spirits, in the minds of all that are here. Father, I pray that you would call your children to yourself and that you would help us be used and useful to our Lord. In your precious Son's name I pray. Amen.